Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Timely discussion today as we will focus in on takeaways from the Fed statement and talk about the implications to fixed income markets. We will also tie in the latest fixed income strategist publication from the UBS Chief Investment Office. That title, Skipping into Summer. Joining us for the conversation, glad to welcome the publication's lead author, head of taxable fixed income strategy for the American Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Leslie Falconio. Leslie, great to be with you as always, and thank you for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. So, Leslie, maybe let's start with the Fed. Can you briefly recap some notable takeaways from yesterday's policy decision, the press conference? It was all, of course, highly anticipated. And maybe share with us CIO's expectations for the upcoming July meeting. Sure. I mean, as as expected, you know, the the Fed paused. They paused in June, which was very well advertised, both in the Wall Street Journal and from their own rhetoric. So the surprise would have been if they actually would have hiked. So they kept they kept the pause, but with that hawkish overtone, you know, as the market was anticipating, because as we've seen, we still have a very strong labor market. The inflation is is not anywhere near. The, although falling is not anywhere near their target. And I think the market, you know, and most strategists have been surprised at how, how the strength of the economy in, you know, the first quarter, particularly when now we look at the, the second quarter of Atlanta uh, uh, GDP that's, you know, trending near 2%. So I think that the, the overall tone was for a pause in, in June, a hawkish outlook. And more importantly, when we think about how they have uh, shifted their economic projections, which again is just a foundation. It's it's not necessarily what's going to you know occur in stone. It's just a guide, and that the fact that they actually put in the potential of you know two more rate hikes in 2023, you know versus one, and obviously they lowered their unemployment rate. They increased their GDP forecast um, from the March meeting because the, the the economic debt is coming much more stronger than was what was expected. So as far as the policy direction from the Fed, how are you interpreting that with respect to implications for fixed income markets? And following the statement and the press conference yesterday, was there any notable reaction within fixed income markets? Well, I mean, our our first and what we've been touting most of, I'm actually for all of this year, was the overly dovish outlook that the market was pricing in. And what I mean by that, Dan, is that the market was pricing in, if you look at, say, the second week of May, you know, nearly 80 basis points of easing in the second half of 23. And we had felt that that was much too much, much too much of a dovish outlook in the, in the form that highly unlikely that they would reverse that quickly unless you saw, you know, negative payroll for like three consecutive months. So it, the market priced that out. And that was the first thing. And, and that was really, that's really, and it was an important guide to the fact that finally the market is following the Fed's guidance, which they have stated multiple times that they had no intention of easing in the second half of the year, assuming that there isn't some sort of fat tail event. Um, and the market readjusted to that. And that was important, given, and it really showed up in the yield curve, which actually started to invert a little bit more. We saw the two-year yields move a bit higher, but they priced that out. So now when we think about going forward, our expectation is that more than likely they will hike in July. Um, it's it was it's been very well guided. The market's pricing in you know probably about an 85 percent chance that they price in July. We have you know the, the July meetings not till the end of July around the 26th. So you can have a lot of weeks with a lot of data. But right now it looks as though that's most likely the course of action. And then 
besides that, just that tw- the 25 basis point hike in July, it's a higher for longer. And that's what really is the key. I mean, the longer that you keep interest rates or an inverted yield curve, borrowing costs to the consumer, borrowing costs of corporations higher, the more it'll be a headwind. And we're seeing this particularly when it comes to what we call real yields. Real yields are nominal yields minus inflation expectations, and they are an indication of, you know, the level of restriction that the economy might face. And we have two-year real yields, and we wrote this in the FIS, that we haven't seen since 2007, around that 260 level. We have five-year real yields that yesterday reached a 186. The highest is two this year. So you're really starting to have the potential of restricting the economy, but it's with the assumption and the need, for that matter, when we look at the data right now, that the Fed maintains higher for longer with more than likely one rate hike in July. Running with yields a bit further, let's dive into the fixed income strategist a bit. Within the publication, you do mention, Leslie, how you've increased interest rate upside risk. What yield levels do you see as attractive as we make our way now further into the second half of the year? Yeah, we, we, we actually increased our upper band, if you will, and we put that back toward the, where we had in the beginning of the year. So in the beginning of the year, when we started 10-year yields at the 388, you know, our, our expectation was you'd be around the 390, 395, right? We weren't, at that point in time, too, we were thinking about more of a slowing in the economy that's actually come to fruition, but that really was our expectation. But we had around that 395-ish upper bound in 10-year yield, and we did add when we got to that level. After the uh, financial instability that we saw in March, we kind of moved that upper band down to around that 370-ish level as, as a target to, say, 325, 330 to 370 was our short-term range. We've now moved the upper band back up again and the, to that 395 level, and it's twofold. Obviously, first of all, they, they took out the easing. They are increasing uh, more rate hikes than was, was expected in the beginning of the year. But also, too, the amount of supply that's coming into the marketplace and not just uh, to replenish the cash that that's needed after they resolve the debt ceiling, but because of the supply that's coming in the second half of the year in terms of coupon issuance to pay for the deficit. So on the fact that we have a lot of supply coming in, the fact that we have probably another rate hike, we still look for that maybe 395-ish level, but more than likely – and, you know, we can never say never because you do, because we because the data is going to lead. You know, that 408 level that we got in uh, pro, right the, actually the week prior to the headwinds to regional banks, you know, we had around that 408, 410 level. Could we see that again? Yes, of course we could. We just don't think it's going to be sustained. We think that market will definitely buy it there. We would, we would add again around that 395 because although – because given the fact the market is pricing out the easing and given the fact that it has the expectation of another rate hike, a lot of this kind of hawkish bearishness is priced in for the time being. And now you're going to wait. Now you're going to wait to see if, in fact, the unemployment rate does rise. We saw claims today coming a little worse than expected. We had to wait to see if the unemployment rate does move higher. We have to wait to see to make sure that the path of inflation continues on a downward trend. But for what we have and the information we have right now and what the market is pricing in, we still lock in longer. We take that carry. But we're going to do it around that 390, 395 level. But note that we've already done part of this already. At 395, we got long. At 375, we added. And that's sort of our incremental, not chase the market, look for opportunities when the market trades off to start really locking in longer. 
So with respect to positioning, Leslie, there was a change made this month within the allocation table. You did shift preferred securities from neutral to most preferred. And for some historical context, this asset class preferred securities had faced performance headwinds back in 2022, different times now. So what makes preferred securities look attractive today? Well, I think, Dan, first of all, what you mentioned is important. And, you know, the 2022 performance for preferreds was about a negative 16 percent, but that wasn't necessarily the outlier, right? When you, when, you know, every, every interest rate sensitive product in 2022 had poor performance, given the fact we went from a one and a half percent starting in 22 and went all the way up to a four and a quarter. So it wasn't as though preferreds was, was isolated in that underperformance. But the fact that they actually gained some traction and then really gave a lot of that back, you know, in terms of, price depreciation during a time when Treasury yields were falling really started to make the asset class look very attractive. And we know a lot of this headwind had to do with the financial instability that we saw, you know, in March. You know, we, it was a, there was a bit of contagion with, you know, not isolated to just a small sector of the preferred marketplace, but obviously guilt by association, even the larger banks started to, you know, face some headwinds. So what we're seeing in terms of the preferred is not just the carry that you have the ability to earn, but also the fact we do think there's a potential for price appreciation there because, you know, the, the sector in and of itself had gotten hit so hard. And again, there's a big divergence between financials and non-financials. So it really made an attractive entry point. Now, with every other asset class, you know, you could have these pockets of vulnerability. But locking in, I think, for, the, for you know, the next several months, these type of yields and the fact that, you know, this scare of a banking crisis that really flooded the marketplace in March really hasn't come to fruition. No, do we think it will? It's a good time to add a cheap asset. So, Leslie, I know preferreds are not the only most preferred subsector within the allocation table. What else should fixed income investors be taking a look at right now? Well, we've had a barbell in investment grade corporates, and the barbell positionings has to do with the fact that you know, although you know the mar- with the market pricing in such a hawkish Fed, and we know that you know the yield curve twos tens right now is about negative ninety three basis points. There's a lot of carrying in the short end, right? And although we do believe you should lock in longer, you can't dismiss the amount of yield that you're earning in the short end, and you can't dismiss the fact you're earning that yield without taking on interest rate risk. But given the levels of yields that we are, are, are at, you know, and have been at, and the fact that some of these seven to ten year, say, IG corporates are at, you know, uh, are at spreads well above the median, which is one, probably one of the cheapest sectors, and the yields are well above their ten year average that you could lock in at, it's good to have a combination of both. So while we have that sector, we also note that investment-grade corporates as a sector, when you look at the spreads, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say they're cheap, right, because they're really not. I mean, the 139, 138 investment-grade corporate uh, index is now generating in spread is, well, is below the median, right? This isn't something that you're looking at, well, this is really outlier cheap, but it is a safer way to earn that carry, and you do it in a barbell fashion. On the agency MBS side, that's a different story because this is a AAA asset that actually is cheap. And it's cheap um, because of the fact that not necessarily there's something wrong with housing because actually the residential mortgage space is probably going to be one of the safest spots as the economy turns and we start to slow, given the fact that most consumers have locked in their mortgage rates as much lower than the current 7%. I mean, two-thirds have a mortgage rate that's, that's below 4%. So the agency MBS side was facing a lot of 
technical headwinds. And what I mean by that was partly because of quantitative tightening, which really the market was pricing in. But what the market wasn't pricing in was these, these failed three banks that forced their some portfolio liquidations. And part of that was agency MBS, which brought um, unexpected supply to the marketplace. And when you have that, you need to have that private investor pick up that slack. And when you have times of interest rate volatility, such as what we're seeing today, in order for the private investor to pick up that slack, they want to be compensated for it. So spreads widen. Now, we're, we're about 60, near 60% done with that sale, and it's already priced in. So now that we have you know, the, the market adjusting to the Fed guidance of removing the easing, the market adjusting to the guidance that more than likely they're going to hike one more time, Interest rate volatility is starting to fall, and that is a tailwind to agency MBS performance. Now that we have supply coming down, on top of the fact that AAA MBS, this is AAA, remind you, is actually cheap to corporates, we're starting to see a lot of the sector is, uh, interest, not just from hedge funds and, and also um, – uh, institutional like money managers, but we do think that one of the bigger buyers, which has been a bit quiet this year, the banks will actually come in because the, the spreads are so much more attractive than they are in Treasury. And again, this is a AAA asset, so when it comes to the risk-based capital, they don't they don't take what we call like a big hit. So we we do like the agency MBS sector overall. So we still have the high quality. The preferred is is a bit of a combination of both the credit the higher quality and a bit more credit embedded sector. So that's, you know, when we add that, that's a little bit more risk on, but it's a great way to diversify the portfolio. Leslie, this has been a very helpful conversation. Thank you for providing some takeaways, perspective around the Fed statement, the policy decision, speaking to the fixed income landscape, how you see that evolving over the next six months and for the guidance when it comes to positioning. Looking forward to picking back up with our fixed income conversation again soon, though. Thank you for your time today, Leslie. Appreciate it as always. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. And again, today we have been joined by Leslie Falconio, head of taxable fixed income strategy for the Americas with the UBS chief investment office. We have been referencing the latest fixed income strategist publication. It is a monthly piece. The title of the latest edition is Skipping into Summer. That publication is available for you now up on UBS.com slash CIO. For clients of UBS, be sure to reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of the publication directly. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 